Welcome to season eight of a Vietnam podcast, sharing the stories of people connected to Vietnam. My name is Neil Mackay. I've been living in Vietnam since 2016 and hosting this podcast since 2019. I wanted to know more about the people that lived in Vietnam, both local and foreigners, and share their story. My guest today was born and raised in Hanoi, but left Vietnam at the age of just 18 to study business and interior design in Japan and worked for companies such as IKEA. He is a creative director, artist, and dog dad of Crumpet and Butter. We'll share today what it was like leaving Vietnam at a young age and living in Japan, what it's like being a creative today, what actually is an NFT, and how he got his dog's Instagram to 140,000 followers. My guest today is Ben Nguyen. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. So, first of all, come on, everyone loves dogs. I love dogs. Tell us all about Crumpet and Butter. Well, well, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I've, I've never been on a podcast before. Um, podcast virgin. Awesome. Yeah. Podcast version. Well, Crumpet is a corgi. She's five years old. It's a chow chow, a white chow chow. Quite rare in Vietnam. She's just turned three. We forgot her birthday. So that really bad parents. But yeah, super fluffy, super cute, super well behaved. They they moved to from Japan to Vietnam with us two years ago and living their best life now. <laughs> you brought them from Japan. Yeah, yeah. Are your dogs are they spoiled like mine? I think to some extent, yes. <laughs> like, well, who doesn't spoil their dogs, right? <laughs> that is a good point. Well, because we've just come back from, you know, Fukuok and we, we made the effort to take Biscuit all the way to Fukuok for Tet. We took a car overnight then we went by ferry. Instead of just getting a 45-minute flight, you know, it was like an 11-hour journey, which is fine. Mm. And then she gets to spend all the time on the beach. And because you mentioned that comment, they're like living their best life. And it's just looking at her and you're like, you have a better life than most human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that, does she actually like it? Or we just assume that they're having the best life, but they actually hate the beach. <laughs> no, she loves it. And then now that we're back, she looks miserable. She just sits on the couch, like staring at us, like, I want to go to the beach. Why are we sitting in this <laughs> apartment? You know? But so tell me then. So, I think we have a, uh, an Instagram for Biscuit. Yeah, we do. Go check it out. If you're listening, you want to follow Biscuit. It's Biscuit the Back Pig. I think there's about 20 followers on there. How did you get their Instagram account to 140,000 followers? That means they're dog influencers. Well, I mean, we, we can say that. But like, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I did not know. Like, I started just creating an, an account. And, you know, like, who doesn't want to have an account for their dogs, right? And at that time, I only had a crumpet and we're just like sharing, you know, daily live pictures, videos, and just one night, one page called Nine Gag, if you, if you know about it, it's like one of the biggest, you know, social media pages at that time, reposted a video of crumpet doing army crawl. So she was like, you know, like, because Kobe is already so short, but she was doing the army crawl and we can't really tell if she's like standing or she's like crawling. So they reposted that and then it happened overnight. I was already sleeping the, morning, the next morning. It was like blowing up and my phone was like, you know, keeping getting notifications. I, I even didn't know that, uh, which page reposted it. And then my friend told me like, oh my God, you were 
featured here. I was like, oh my God. And then it just happened that night. And it was just like 10,000 followers over one night. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. It's amazing how that happens. We had Fook Matt on the, the show before. I don't know if you know him. He's yeah, the, yeah. The, the, a vlogger, sorry. And uh, his story is similar, you know. So he was making uh, his first or one of his first YouTube videos. I don't know if you know about it. When he walked around Saigon with his pet chicken, like quotation marks, pet chicken. And somebody took a picture of him and posted it and it went viral like that night. So before he'd even made the video and published it, he was already like this viral sensation. It's crazy how it can happen so quickly. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So it's like, like, we don't know, we just live our life and then just one day we'll, we'll be over, all over the internet. And yeah, now everyone loves him so much. So do you get offers for them to be like influencers, like wear this stuff, promote these products? Come to our uh, opening event with your dogs. Well, what seems like pet influencer is still like a new thing in, in Japan and in Vietnam. So we don't really like monetize much of them, but we, we still get like, you know, like free gifts, you know, like sponsor products and stuff to like help promote for the brands more like that than yeah. just like you know like and we uh, luckily we 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 were lucky we got a like a tv commercial no uh, way for a brand in vietnam because we we know our one of our friends is the director and then crumpet was on that that's awesome yeah <laughs> is there such a thing as a dog agent there must be even it must be in the u.s at least right yeah, I'm sure like there's still like agencies here who, you know, like who would like, what do you call it? Acquire talent. <laughs> and I th I think, that, yeah, from Ben and Butter, I haven't uh, got their luck yet, but we'll, we'll be there soon. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work we're on it. This, this gets so lazy. She doesn't bring in any money. We have to feed her. She doesn't do anything. <laughs> she sleeps all day. I'm going to get her out to work. going to get her to start making some money. I mean, that's the best life, right? Like actually from Ben and Butter are still having to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, so let's tell me all about, you're from Hanoi originally. You're obviously in Saigon. Talked about it several times on this podcast. We've had people from Saigon and from Hanoi. And it's something that we experienced a little bit just over um, Tet. We met lots of people from Hanoi. I know that they're very different. Do you want to, can you maybe explain what that means to you in terms of being from Hanoi till you were 18, then living overseas, then living in Saigon. How did, how do you see those differences? I actually, I want to ask back to you that like, what different, like what's the difference that you, you're finding between us? Because for us, it's just like, you know, like we, we're, we're still Vietnamese, so we, we can tell each other by the accent yeah. and, you know, uh, a little bit of mannerism, but for you guys, like, I'm actually curious, like, how do you, like, do you, can you tell them apart or? So, so, so. I can't tell them apart. I, well, I can a little bit, like if I hear the accent, but in terms of mannerisms or personality, I can't tell the difference. But when I'm with my Vietnamese friends, then they tell me. So I, I'm sharing like a secondhand opinion, but, yeah. but it's, been, it's been a repeated thing from different people that there's a big difference. So that, I want to know what your opinion is before I share what I've, what I've been told, but again, it's all secondhand because I can't actually understand what those, those nuances are. How to, how to talk about this without being so discriminating, <laughs> if you know what I mean. No, it's just like, I think we, how to say, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's just all my first time actually living in the South. So it's just like, you know, every day learning new words, actually for me, yeah. like sometimes I, like, I have no idea what they're talking about or just like, it's like simple 
nails to to tell to talk about things that I don't understand and then actually misunderstood and then give them a wrong thing. So it's just like little things like that. It's like really fun to like live here. But other than that, I think to me, the Southern people, like because of their accent, they sound uh, sweeter to me. Okay. Well, they, they, like yeah. the, they like sweeter food as well, don't they? Like, especially for the girls, like they, they sound really cute like like you know what i mean like uh like really gentle really in a cute way all right no so i know I, yeah. I don't really know that one. Oh, interesting that's a good one well yeah one of the things that my friend had told me there was that you're talking kind of mentioned like discriminatory so there's always the misconception that foreigners will always be ripped off you know given that the foreigner price but she told me that when she went to hanoi or when she goes to hanoi they will rip off southerners faster and more than they would rip off a foreigner well that that's not not true no it's uh, not no it's not not true, oh, like, not, not it, true. It, 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 it does <laughs> happen sometimes but you know like you know we it's just like you know um lucky or, or unlucky right it's just like you know we we get rid of in bangkok it's just it's like that it's like because you're a tourist so it, it's meant to happen. It's, yeah, exactly. It's more like that. It's not like, uh, because you're from the South, so I'm going to rip you off. But um, it, it does happen. Yeah. And maybe because of the, the like, one, 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 one bad vendor did it, and then they, they think it's, it, it works, then they can tell the other yeah. vendor, and then they keep doing it in a chain. So it becomes like a culture in Hanoi to like, rip off people, yeah. maybe. But I think that, that there was a lot of that in the past, not anymore, right. to my knowledge. Right. Yeah. So have you faced any discrimination in Saigon for being from the North? Actually, no, lucky for me, but I don't think that would be a lot of discrimination here in the South in terms of that. But in daily life, I mean, in person, but on the internet, you know, like there would be really bad comments and really rude people, you know, talking nasty things about, you know, people from other regions. Yeah. So you're saying it happens online, but not in person? It happens online more than in, in person. Well, that's pretty common, right? Because people love to talk shit online and then uh, <laughs> they don't really, they don't really mean it in real life, right? So yeah. what, tell me just briefly then, so you've moved, tell me about growing up in Hanoi then before moving to Japan. That's incredible. Like 18 years old, moving to Japan. How did that? I think it's kind of like a common thing for, for people who's 18 and then about to graduate high school to do in, in, in Vietnam in general. I was studying in a school and in a, an English specialized class. So if you're in that class, you're, 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 you're meant to be going somewhere after high school. And at that point, my, my school was kind of like 50, 50, 50 would be going, like wanting to go to the U S and the rest would be wanting to go somewhere else that, you know, like overseas to study. I chose Singapore at that point, but then unfortunately I failed the entrance test to, yeah, to the universities there. So I had no choice, but, um, enrolling in a uh, uni in Hanoi which is uh, Hanoi University at that point. And then I had one semester there and then I found this university in Japan in the Southern Islands. One of my friends in my class already went there 
And she was like, it's absolutely amazing. It's, you're going to love it. Why don't you apply? So I listened to her. I applied. I got the scholarship and I went. That's awesome. And so how is your Japanese? Uh, at that time, like zero, zero percentage. Like we, that's, that's like a global, not global, international university. So they also have like, you know, foreigners and they have 50% Japanese. For foreigners who don't have any Japanese skill, language skill, then we will have to enroll in an English-based like, uh, syllabus. And then at the, at the same time, we will have to take a Japanese classes to help with our daily life. And then for the first two years, we, we had to study the Japanese language from beginner level to advanced. So you studied in English? And study uh, Japanese at the same time. Ah, interesting. So whereabouts did you travel in Japan? That was one of the last countries that we went to before the lockdown, before the, before the pandemic was so glad. It was like a last minute, almost like a weekend trip away to Kyoto or Osaka. And thank goodness we did because, you know, haven't left Vietnam now. And yeah, I, I had lived there for 12 years. So I, I did get, you know, to travel quite a lot in, in Japan. So all those, you know, big cities and big destinations that, that everyone has to uh, visit, then I, I had visited there and I ended up in Tokyo my later years. And then I just came back from Tokyo two years ago. Yes. Yeah, so you've just come back recently to Vietnam. Well, yeah. while you were in um, Japan, so you obviously, you studied interior design and business. You worked for companies like Ikea. That's pretty cool. So it's, uh, you designed furniture for Ikea. Well, my, my career path, my, my life story is quite unusual because it doesn't go like one straight line like this. It's kind of like zigzaggy. So I studied business in the beginning because, uh, as any, many other Asian parents, they wouldn't let their children study art, right? <laughs> For to them, it's art. Yeah. It's we've had this before uh, on the show and then personally as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they were like, art doesn't make any money. Art's not going to help you get rich. Um, <laughs> go study something like, you know, like business. So I went to study business, oh. right? And then my third year when I was still studying business and then I had one more year until graduation and I was like, no, I cannot picture myself wearing suits in a cubicle, working in business, finance, to say. Then I was like, mom, dad, like I... I know you didn't say yes before, but my, th I'm in my third year now. I know what I'm doing with my life. I'm doing fine until now. Can I go study design? <laughs> and then I think at that point, because, because of what I said, and they, they know that I can do, you know, live on my own. So they said, yes. And I was like, okay, now I can. I actually, I know how to do graphic design now. So I, maybe I should study something that, that I don't know. So I, I had interest in interior for all my life. So uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to find a school that has a uh, interior design course. And then I found one in Tokyo <laughs> and I went there and I, and, and it, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> uh, graduating there, I got a job at IKEA Japan. So I was one of the designers that you know, design the, the sample rooms. If you ever been to Ikea, you yeah, know that yeah. they have one floor with just like rooms and rooms of, you know, yeah. different life size, both of them. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> if one goes, then exactly. the other one go as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was a really nice experience for me to like, you know, my, my first step into the working environment in, in Japan, learned a lot, you know, culture shock as well. And then after being there for three years, I felt like I had learned everything that I did. And then there was every year was kind of the same work. So I was like, okay, I, I was not actively looking for a different job, but I had that thought. Mm. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, if something cool, interesting comes up, then I will be doing that. And it's just like my, my career path is quite a series of lucky events. So <laughs> when I was having that thought and one of my friends who just got a job at the uh, Trunk Hotel, which is Tokyo's first five-star boutique hotel at that time, 2017, she got a job there as a barista and then she was like, now you, you're saying that you, you kind of want to change job. Like, do you want me to like pass on your um, CV to a trunk hotel? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? At the time, like trunk hotel doesn't have any position that I think I would be interested in. And then, but they, they decided to have a talk with me. And then during the first talk, they also, we both sat down and they were like, okay, I don't know what you can do. And we also don't know what we can give you. On my side, I also like, okay, I don't know what I can <laughs> do for you guys. And, but uh, we can talk this through and if we can find something in common, then we can, you know, develop, develop from there. And then we were just chatting, like doesn't really go anywhere. Then they asked me, do you do social media? And I was like, duh. Uh and then I was like, oh, well, I do do this um, account for my dogs, Crumpet and Butter. And then at that point, I think I had about 100,000 followers or something. Wow. So they saw that and they were like, okay, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so yeah. And then they were like, okay, we don't actually have any position for social media specialists, but because we also the first boutique hotel in Tokyo, we want to... Uh, become a benchmark for, you know, other hotels that come after to be like one of those uh, hotels who really care about the visuals and, you know, like the brand images and stuff. Can you come and help us with the social media and stuff? I was like, yeah. That is amazing. What I love as well, how you said you didn't monetize the, like the crumpet and butter Instagram, but you got a career and a job out of it. So that's amazing. Yes, I can say like I monetize a little bit out of it, right? <laughs> well, I, I had an important question, first of all, though, about IKEA was how many Swedish meatballs did you eat? Oh my God, unlimited. Like I can't, oh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if I get $1 for every bowl that I ate, that sounds really wrong <laughs> coming out of my mouth now, but I would be, I would be rich now. <laughs> And I do miss it a lot. Like, I don't know when I can actually coming here, but I, that will be the first thing that I'm going to eat. So just make it clear, you miss putting Swedish meatballs in your mouth. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but you did mention something else about Ikea and, but it probably carries on to your career at Trunk as well. One question I wanted to ask about, you know, Japan is very famous for its work culture or, or maybe more appropriate is infamous for its work, work culture. And for me, it makes me really sad because, you know, I, I really value work-life balance. And when you, when you hear these kind of, not rumors, when you see these things, you hear about them on TV, the pressure that, that, that there is in the, in the workplace and career, it, 
Yeah, it makes me feel really sad because I don't think anyone should have to have to live like that. And I wonder, well, how was that for you? Like you must have experienced that firsthand then. Is it, do you just get used to it? Is it manageable or is it a horrible stress and pressure? The whole- but to be completely honest, we're on the same page because I, I, even though I was living in Japan, but I never really had um, any experience in experiencing that, you know, horrible work-life balance because IKEA was also internationally, like they are Swedish company, so they follow their um, international guidelines in terms of work-life balance. So I, I had to like finish on time. I, I got yelled at one time because I was staying after 5 p.m. trying to finish my work. And so that was like really, you know, like really nice mm. first step for me to ease into the working environment in Japan. And then I never really experienced how horrible like work-life balance in, in Japan was. And then moving to Trump Hotel, they were also like, because they're in the uh, uh, hospitality industry and they want to become one of those, you know, international global image. So they also do not really encourage people overworking. Mm. And my role was like kind of like marketing and social media uh, management. So I kind of had a lot of freedom on my end. Like I can even go to work at 1 p.m., go home at 5 p.m. It doesn't matter as long as I deliver what I need Mm. to deliver. So also very lucky of me. So I never really experienced the Japanese corporate life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is really lucky. What so what what was your experience of that culture? Like even from afar, so luckily you didn't experience it. But what how did that eventuate in reality or friends that you had? Because I think of things I've read or seen about like, you know, businessmen have to stay out drinking all night just to impress their peers or the boss. And I think I've seen pictures of businessmen in suits sleeping on the sidewalk, then going to work the next morning. I mean, is that like, am I just seeing a couple of things on Reddit that's been blown out of proportion or is that a reality in Japan? That's actually reality. Like, even though I'm not in that environment, but I, I see it happening every day. So I'm kind of like in that uh, environment, if you know what I mean. Just like, you know, every, like, you know, every time on the train, there would be at least five drunk salarymen and, you know, like they would be like looking horrible, like really hating their life, friends, like. My friends who work for a Japanese corporates, they, they actually feel stressed about drinking parties. Like they don't want to do it, but they have to do it for their career. Yeah, that's what I do. For their relationship. Yeah. So how do you call them salaryman? Is that what you call them? That's what people call them in, in Japan, yeah. salaryman. Yeah. So how, this was a kind of question I thought about before. So how do those people form relationships? Like, you know, partnerships, how do they... Is that part of impressing a partner that you can do all of that? How do they have time if they have children? Like, I, I just don't understand. It just se- seems to me such an unsustainable lifestyle. So how does it, is it like, how does it work? Basically? <laughs> I mean, sadly, like major, like a majority of them actually don't have any relationship. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they work. The re- only relationship that they have is with their boss. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, they go to work, they come home. They go to work, they come home. Basically, that's, that's their life. So they don't really have any time to like even have uh, the fun for themselves, mm. let alone, you know, finding. So is there a point, like, do they do that just until a certain age? Is that something you do in your 20s as a young executive or, or young professional? At what point do you then, because you can't do that 
forever, right? So at what point do they move out of that? Is that something you just have to go through to get ahead? At what point do you get ahead? Well, I think early 20s, when you just graduate, then you would have probably have to do it. Mm -hmm. And if you have a, a, a more open-minded mindset, then you will, at one some point, maybe from 25 onwards, you would find that lifestyle not healthy mm. and you actually want to change it. And, you know, you start to develop friendships or go out more and not staying up late. Mm. Then I would say from 25, if people who have open-minded mindset, they will, they will find a way to change their lifestyle. Other than that, they will just stick to that, you know, non-work-life balance existence for the rest of their life. That's just how sad the uh, the industry in Japan is. Yeah. So I would recommend going to Japan for fun yeah. or traveling. <laughs> Living there is not as fun, like to be honest. Well, this is this is kind of why I'm asking because you know, being a, an English teacher as well myself, I would never want to work in Japan. Although I've had some friends who have enjoyed it there, and and they do enjoy it. But similar with Korea and Japan, the reason why many English teachers don't enjoy working there, and then they love Vietnam because it's definitely much more of a a focus on the work-life balance. But to go back to Ikea, it's quite funny that last week when we hosted a quiz, one of, one of the rounds was 12 different types of tables. And you had to write down which type of table it was. So I'm going to send you the quiz round after, after we finished and you have to send me the answers by your face right now. It looks like you don't even know 12 different types of table. No, you mean like the names of the products or? Not like, so this was one of the questions at the quiz was like, do you mean like the Ikea names of it? And I was like, no, no, not the, just like the type of table. Like in terms of shape and functions. And yeah. Stuff? So for example, one of them would be dining table, dining room table would be, oh, okay. would be one example. But how many types of tables do you think that you could name? If you were at this quiz, you would have got full marks, I hope. Ooh, I hope so too, because otherwise it's going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> I'm going to send, I'm going to send it to you afterwards and then I'll hopefully. Oh, yeah, I'll, I would love to give it a try. Yes. I'll, uh, at the end of the podcast, keep listening. I'll record how Ben did, what his score was on the table. <laughs> you probably need to edit it out though. <laughs> <laughs> no, so obviously, so you're a, a creative person, obviously, and it's amazing. It's good. It's, it's so funny when you say about your parents wanted you to do business. It's one of these things because most stereotypes are based in reality. You know, Scottish people have a reputation for being alcoholics. Well, not all alcoholics, but statistically, we have a massive problem with alcohol in Scotland. So there, there is this a truth to the stereotype. That, that stereotype of the tiger parents of Asian parents really only wanting their kids to, to do kind of an accountant, doctor, lawyer, engineer. It's just so true, isn't it? Yes, I think it's also because due to the lack of uh, media exposure for that generation, mm. I mean, we are still like developing countries or, so, you know, when, sure. you know, at that, with that generation, they actually did not have any exposure to the social media, right? They, we didn't even have that much of like TV content as you guys would in, in the Western uh, countries. But so it's just like for them, art and design in general, it's just like, you know, like, drawing and painting yeah yeah for sure i think that's what they think of art and so because of that they were like how can you like make money off you know just like drawing it's not gonna you know take you anywhere just do something that like people actually need you for like business finance doctor you know those titles so i think it's just it's it's common like we we don't even take it uh 
personal personally anymore. Like it, it, it just you know one of the Asian cultures that yeah. that parents would be uh, you know tiger parents who don't allow their kids to you know explore the world and do what they want. Do you think that's changing for the next generation of students? Absolutely. Like with with the social media so developing right now, they get exposed to more things happening in the world. They they get to know more about like say NFT, like who thought of NFTs, right? So now they know that you know artists can actually make a lot of money off you know one of their paintings, you know one of their cartoon characters. And so it's just like the more exposure that they get to to experience, then. Um, it would be better for the next generation. It it would be less of uh, pressure for them to to have to follow what their parents want them to follow. Mm. In my opinion, yeah. Well, you've brought us to a next point perfectly. NFTs. Okay, so you are a NFT creator. Is that correct? Is that how I would? To be honest, I still at this point I still don't one hundred percent understand NFT. Like how <laughs> how can I make money off it? I do have it though. But if you're interested, and if you're interested in buying, I will link it to you. But yeah, I'm still also like uh, seeing what other artists do, how the market is like actually changing, and how, what people would be interested in buying as NFT art. So let's let's go back a step before we're buying an NFT. Let's figure out what the hell is it? Because I'm looking at it now. It's just like blowing up. It's, it's just all over the place. All I hear is about NFTs. And look, a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I'm so unknowledgeable about it. I saw something about it. You know, it's a non-fungible token. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was a made-up world. I thought fungible was a joke world. I thought it maybe had something to do with fungus. I just thought the whole thing was a joke, like a non-fungible token. And then I started reading about it and Googling and I'm like, oh, fungible is a world. And then there's another world called non-fungible. So... Do you want to explain the difference between fungible and non-fungible before I butcher it, if you know? I actually don't. (laughs) (laughs) So you, I can actually share what you researched so far and let me know. (laughs) Okay, so fungible is something that can be exchanged. Hold on, let me just quickly Google it again, just quickly remind myself. Fungible. So basically it was saying when I looked up, it's something like Bitcoin. So let me see. So Google says able to replace or be replaced by another identical item, mutually interchangeable. All right. Whereas non-fungible means that it can't be replaced by another item. So what an NFT is, this is where it blows my mind, right? So you create a digital artwork, right? And, it, yeah. and for some reason, it's called an NFT. The NFT part of it is you sell it to somebody, right? And they own the original. Now, because it's digital, they own the original digital copy. So that's theirs. But the problem is, well, not the problem, but the thing is because it's a digital thing, anyone can copy and paste it. So it can be copy and pasted a million times. But that person still owns the original. And what? It was compared to, which I thought was a really good comparison, was it's like owning the original of the Mona Lisa. You own the original Mona Lisa. There's still a million copies. There's a million tea towels with the Mona Lisa on it, but you own the original. But the problem is the Mona Lisa is a physical thing. You own it. You have it. Obviously, it's in a museum, but it's just as an example. Whereas an NFT is a, a digital thing. Nobody can tell the difference between 
the original digital artwork that you've created and the copy of it. And so I don't understand. I don't know if anyone understands. I'm sure someone does. I don't understand how it has value. And why is it blowing up right now? Why is that all I see on the news? All I hear about is NFTs, NFTs. Can you explain any more on what I've just described? Well, I actually don't know when or where it started with this whole new trend, but you were absolutely right with the Mona Lisa. I actually read that uh, Reddit <laughs> thread about Mona Lisa. It's like explaining really sim uh, in a simple way how NFT works. Is that, you know, like you, you, you can, you, if you own the uh, original, then no matter how many copies that other people have, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have any value. So for NFT, it's the same. Say I have this uh, picture of a biscuit I drew digitally. Then you buy it from me as an NFT and then you own it. So now even if I send that, you know, JPEG uh, version of biscuit photo to 20 other people and then later on, if that if biscuit became famous and the value of the drawing that I made, that I sold to you, would be worth, you know, millions of dollars. And those 20 other, other 20 people that they have the copy of uh, Bitskit, they want to sell it to try to, you know, like get some money off it. They cannot because they, they don't have any say, when you buy the NFT from me, you will get a specific code to it. And right. that would be your kind of like my, um, autocrat, like my yeah. real that this is the uh, only original. one original artwork, then no one can actually sell it off. So then would it come down to like, you know, trademarking or copyright or whatnot? So if someone else made tea towels, for example, or was selling posters with this picture on it, you could be like, hey, I didn't give you permission to copy this because I own this picture. Like, is I don't know the legalities of it. Is that what it is? Absolutely, yeah. You can have the right to, to sue them and bring them to court for violating. I feel like there's going to be a huge problem in Vietnam where everyone copies everything. <laughs> but in a sad way, do we actually can? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, true. So, so the other question I had for you as well, because I saw on your website, it said all your works are digitally hand-drawn. Now that seems like a massive oxymoron to me. How can it be digitally hand-drawn? My digital drawing, let's say Korea, started out, I've always uh, loved drawing, but because of that, I cannot just like bring papers and pens and, you know, like spread out like a whole desk of my, my stationery on the plane to draw. So then I was like, okay, I want to draw when it, wherever I go, like anytime I want. And then at that point, Apple just released the first iPad Pro that comes with a pen. And mm. I was like, okay, I'm going to switch to that so I can, you know, like draw more because, because of all the troublesome that I have to do with the traditional stationery, then I, I get lazy and I didn't really draw as much as I wanted. So because of the iPad Pro, I actually began to draw more and more and more. And then I got better at it. Mm. And then now I'm just like, yeah, I don't know how to draw on the paper anymore, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> man, I'm such an old man. I'm so old. I mean, all this technology has been invented in my lifetime. That's why I feel like I'm an old man just asking this stupid question. How did you digitally hand draw it? And you're like, well, yeah, because I just used an iPad Pro. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I just can't even fathom in my mind, like, how you digitally create that. But I guess it's not that crazy, right? The other question I had about NFTs is, do they have to have the same 
kind of style? Because every NFT I've seen so far, and even looking at yours, they've all got the same kind of style. Is that part of it or is that just coincidence? Not at all. You can actually sell anything as an NFT, like, like, you know, like one of the most expensive NFT artworks that just got so recently was a series of photos that a guy had been taking for five years nonstop. And then they, he put it into a collage and then he sold it. And now it's like, I don't know how much, like $65 million. So it's like, you can actually sell anything as NFT. You can actually sell this podcast as an NFT and what? let's split if someone buys it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I've no, I'm see, this is where I get, I'm just, I have no idea what you're talking about. How do you sell this podcast as an NFT? Well, I don't get it. Like also the, the poor thing, like even with cryptocurrency, I don't fully understand how it has value, right? Other than we just assign it value. So even with the NFT, so he sold this for 65 million just because someone's like, I want to pay 65 million for it. Or it's like, is it because, so if you create an NFT, it's just because it's a work of art. Someone's like, oh my God, that is so amazing. I will pay you X amount of money. To all, to my understand now, it's, I think it's just like a, a, a piece of art that someone's really interested in owning and they have so much money on hands and then they just want to buy it. To my understanding now, like I, I don't know the, the back of the mind of the person that purchased it. So I can't really tell like what actually, you know, initiated the, the idea of buying that, you know, say a uh, collage of a selfie. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, the other thing, because people keep talking about it being kind of like a speculative market or people are investing in it. So what is it that suddenly people think that they, they put all this money into it and then it's going to increase in value? I don't understand. Anyway, we're going to circles. I'm never going to, I'll understand it when they don't worry. Now, what we're going to do, thank you very much for joining me. This is the first episode of season eight of uh, 7 Million Bikes. I'm so excited. Well, it's now 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast, which has changed from a Saigon podcast. We're listened to all over the world. We've already hit over 27,000 downloads. We're rated as one of the top 10% podcasts in the world. So it's pretty awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you so much to everyone that's listening. We're going to finish as we do with every single episode with a series of questions. And I change them for every single season. So this is the first question of season eight and the first interview with Ben Nguyen. If you could travel anywhere in Vietnam for a week, where would you go and why? For one, I would say Dalat though, because everyone's been to Dalat, to be honest. Like, I'm the only Vietnamese person or like just the only person in Vietnam who hasn't been to Dalat. Wait, what? You've never been to Dalat? Exactly. It's embarrassing, right? Because (laughs) of that reaction that you just gave me right now. It's just like, okay, I might as well just go now. So just don't stop judging me. Biscuit's but been to the lab you... twice. She has a better life than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Sorry, that's a good reason. But I think you are literally you... the last person in Vietnam to not go to the Exactly. But when you say seven days, I I don't know. I don't know if I can actually do seven days in Dalat. Like I've never been, but I feel like it's too small to be there for seven days. But I would just go to Dalat for now. Now you could. You that love would be it. my answer. It's cool yes. here. It'd be awesome. So tourism is coming back to Vietnam soon. What advice would you give to a tourist coming to Vietnam for the first time? Bringing lots of cash. <laughs> <laughs> like physical cash or like have lots of money? No, I feel like because let's just say like you're coming here 
after after this whole you know situation that we just had for the past two years, then you probably overexcited about anything that you will be doing here anyway. So you probably want to do everything and eat yeah, everything yeah. and drink everything and buy everything. So it's just bring lots of cash. I like it. What you're seeing you is know, like, stimulate the economy. Yes. Yeah, that is good advice. Actually, if you're a tourist and you're coming to Vietnam, please stimulate the tourism economy. That is a great one. Because no. honestly, like, there's so many new things popping up and it's like, even we living here every day, it's like, it's, it's hard to like catch up with everything new opening up, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's been like that since the day we arrived six years ago, just something new all the time opening up. It's, uh, but that's what makes it exciting, exactly. right? So what advice would you give to someone thinking about moving to Vietnam to live? I would say if you, if you actually want to come and wish to come and you, if you're actually coming, then come with an open-minded mindset because, you know, anywhere you go in the world, there would be pros and cons and there would be like things that's different from your, where you're from. So don't look at one with one side, be, be generous about any, um, say, hard situation that you're going to be in, like look from both sides and treat it with open mind. Great advice. And to anyone who's been living here for a long time, that's great advice as well. Now, this is a question that's come up, comes up time and time again, even before I lived in Vietnam. What do you think, what do you think is the difference between an expat and an immigrant? Am I an immigrant? Because I, I feel like I'm an expat here. Like, because I, I was born and raised in Hanoi. I left when I was 18. I came back after 12 years overseas. So basically, um, do you know the term like overseas Vietnamese, right? So I think I'm also one of those terms that you just, just <laughs> asked me. So I think I'm a immigrant, like who, who, who comes and lives here. And expat is who comes and work here <laughs> any sense no so i didn't want to give my opinion away on the first episode but but you've you've completely said what i agree is really simple uh, an expat comes to work and an immigrant comes to live and lots of people get like you know love to virtue signal and be like oh why do we call them expats when they're actually immigrants like i don't consider myself an immigrant because i i don't know how long i'll be in vietnam i didn't come here with the intention to live here I came here with the intention to work. So it doesn't really matter which country you're in, what race you are, where you're from. If you move to a country to live there, you're an immigrant. If you move there to work, you're an expat. It's not to say that you may become an immigrant if you live there long enough and you decide to spend your life there. But to me, that's the main difference. But well, I'm interested to hear what our other guests have to say on that as well. And then last I question. I think they just share the same, like a, a common ground at some, like, in some area. So it's like really hard to like really say this person is an expat and this person is um, an immigrant because you might be thinking that you're an immigrant, but then something might happen and you wanted to go somewhere else, right? And then you then you will become an expat yeah, for those years that you thought you were an immigrant. So it, it's <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can go backwards as well. Yeah, that's very exactly. True. <laughs> The final question, and of all eight seasons, this might be one of my favorite questions I've ever thought of. If Vietnam was a person, how would you describe them? It would definitely be a she, and she would have so many hidden charms, and the more that you get to know her, the more you like her. Aww. And she's spicy as well. <laughs> well, she's only spicy in the middle of the country, right? Yep. 
<laughs> and sometimes say something that we don't even understand. <laughs> well, listen, Ben, thank you so, so much for joining me, for being the first guest on season as I said to Ben before we started this recording, so Ben is also a boxing trainer as well. He's a fitness fanatic and he's been doing online fitness courses all through the pandemic, which has kept Adri um, sane, fit and healthy. I don't participate. I sit in the background on the computer listening and all I heard throughout the whole lockdown was Ben's voice going jab, cross, jab, jab, cross, jab, cross. I like it. Sometimes I fall asleep at night just still hearing Ben's voice in my head. Even though you, you have never really done it, but you got the rhythm though. Like just, just, just from what you just said now, like you're on beats. That's because I found it so many times, but it was awesome. So Ben, before you go, please tell people listening, where can they follow you? Where can they buy your NFT? We're going to put links in the description. So if anyone wants to find them, they can go into the show notes, click the link, follow Ben, tell the people where they can find. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me for, I don't know, I was the first guest to be on your season. Like, congratulations. Like, thank you very much. You've done an amazing job. Um, and uh, if you want, would like to get to know more about me, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, it, um, at it's Ben Nguyen. And you can... Every, all the links that I have is on there. So you can find my NFTs there. You can follow my, our daughters there. You can follow my art there. Just my life in general there as well. So I hope to see some of you there if you ever find me. <laughs> awesome. Yep. We'll make sure to check it out at It's Ben Win. And we didn't even get a chance to talk about, you're a very talented photographer as well, aren't you? I, I, I do all right. You're being <laughs> modest. I've been, I've been told you're a very, very talented photographer and we didn't even get into that. So yeah, definitely check out It's Ben Win And Ben, thank you so much. I will hopefully see you, you Crumpeter so and Mitch soon. Yeah, thank you. I hope to see you soon, very soon. Cheers. Thank you. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of a Vietnam podcast by 7 Million Bites. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to Lewis Wright who made the 7 Million Bites music and continues to support us in every way. Also to our audio engineer, Luke Digweed, for making sure each episode sounds amazing for you. Also, a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community. Thank you so much. It's amazing to get to know you guys. It's amazing to see how much we're growing. And I look forward to seeing you at our next event. You can join the community today. The link is in the description of the show. You'll get free tickets to 7 Million Bikes events, episodes before anyone else, and extra special bonus content only for you, and invites to special member-only events. You will also obviously be providing massive support so that we can keep sharing people's stories with you on a Vietnam podcast. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And remember, we have seven seasons of stories to share with you. So check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.